This episode of the Vincast is brought to you in part by Different Drop, an online wine retailer specialising in Australian wines of provenance, authenticity and innovation. If you go to differentdrop.com, you'll find a huge range of wines made by mostly artisans, small batch uh, and dynamic winemakers uh, across many different regions in Australia, making wines from a huge range of uh, varieties, both uh, classic Australian varieties and also some alternative varieties as well. You'll find wines made by a number of the previous guests of the podcast and I'm sure a number of future guests of the podcast. And it's a great way for you to support uh, the podcast and also to thank the, uh, the guests for their time by buying some of their wines and enjoying them as you listen to the podcast. If you go to differentdrop.com and you put in the special code VINCASTVINO at purchase, the guys at Different Drop will very generously give you $25 off your first purchase over $100. So thank you very much, Different Drop, for your support of the podcast and for your support of great Australian wine. Episode 61 of the Vincast, I chat with Neil Prentice, the man behind Mundara and Holly's Garden. Neil regales me with tales of working in hospitality with the likes of Ian Huey Hewitson and how he established a biodynamic vineyard in Gippsland. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and uh, it's been a, a pretty interesting week. Um, I'm not sure if, uh, if many of you tuned in or have watched the video yet, but uh, the first live streaming Let's Taste video uh, was on uh, Monday, and uh, I was joined by my friend and uh, also sommelier, James Dawson, and we looked at six Australian Grenache wines, very kind donated by the guys from Different Drop uh, and we uh, chatted with them live and uh, some of the winemakers actually tuned in so thank you very much to Brendan Carter, to Alex Head uh, and of course um, the guys from Yellen Paps. Uh, thank you very much for, for watching along live and answering some of the questions that we had uh, on that uh, live stream uh, and of course if you uh, haven't yet watched it or if you, even if you have um, you can actually buy the six wines that we tasted uh, while stocks last through differentdrop.com. Uh, and if you do, make sure you put in the special code IntrepidGrenache and you will be able to get 10% off, which is fantastic. So you can actually watch the video and taste as we do and uh, and, and let me know if you, um, if you agree with us or if you disagree or um, what your comments were. Um, of course, I, uh, I'm putting up Let's Taste videos all the time and uh, in the future I'd love to get some winemakers on. Uh, so I'm hoping to uh, to get some people like Gary Mills and Brad Weir, uh, you know, obviously previous guests of this very podcast to uh, to to taste along live with you, the listeners, so um, so uh, or the viewers, I guess. So I, I hope that uh, is something that uh, we can arrange very soon. 
Now, this week's episode is with Neil Prentice, and uh, he's someone who's been involved with uh, the wine industry and also hospitality for many, many, many years. So um, uh, I had a chat with him about um, his background and um, his decisions about um, planting vineyards and how he likes to make his wine. So uh, it was really fascinating. I hope you enjoy it. Um, I'll, uh, I'll see you on the other side. Neil, thank you so much for joining me today in uh, the Vincast studio for an episode uh, and, and welcome on the show. Thank you very much, James. Great to be here. Uh, typically, I ask my guests every episode um, what the first interaction with wine was that kind of made you consider following a, a, a life in wine. Because let's be honest, if you work in wine, it's sort of your life <laughs> to a large extent. Yeah, it grabs a hold of you. I was working at Champagne Charlie's in the late 80s, early 90s in Turak. And Isn't Champagne Charlie... Oh, that's Checkpoint Charlie I was thinking of in Berlin. Yes. Sorry. The best opening party I've ever been to was the rooftop launch of Checkpoint Charlie's in the city, even before it opened. It oh, was, wow. It was very, very wild. I can't remember <laughs> what year it was, but it was wild. Um, so, yes, working at Champagne Charlie's... Couldn't understand why people were happy to spend a couple of hundred dollars on a bottle of wine when the $10 bottle got you just as drunk. Sure. Um, so you had a fairly typical, let's say, Australian kind of idea about wine. It's like, yeah, wine's an alcoholic beverage. It loosens, it loosens you up, you know, makes you enjoy the party a bit yeah. more. But why spend this much when you don't need to? Yep. Same result. And. Through Russell Branton and a few other people sort of got introduced to Burgundy. So post-Champagne Charlie's, I worked at the last Aussie Fish Cafe with Russell Branton, who's an importer of wine, or was then an importer of wine, was a partner with Ian Hewitson. And that sort of questioning why a $10 bottle, dollar bottle of wine was different to something that cost 100 or 200 led me to falling in love with Burgundy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was back in the eight, mid-80s. Was there much Burgundy being brought into Australia at that point? Well, I was fortunate then because, you know, as a waiter, I was taking $1,000 a week in tips before the stock market crash in 87. Oh, my God. And had nothing to spend it on, so I spent it on falling in love with great wine. And back then, comparatively, great wine was cheap. So I was introduced... Now so, I think it, now it's, it's unavoidable for, for people in hospitality. It's like, I, I can't not drink beautiful wine, but you know, they're a lot more expensive these the, days. The, so it's the, just sort of like, I just happen to, I just end up spending all my money on boots. Um, so yes, I fell in love with, with Burgundy. And yep. you know, back then was buying 52 uh, Barillet Burgundies and all sorts of things for comparatively not a lot of money. Yeah. So I fell in love with Burgundy through DRC and oh. Dujac and... I feel like there's going to be another episode of, of the podcast where I have someone on who had the opportunity to drink these amazing wines, you know, <laughs> some yes. 20 or 30're years ago Abs that, that are a little bit out of reach for, for some Oh, they're of way out days. of reach these days. I can't drink them <laughs> these days. Although there is a bottle of 1990 Bollinger VVF at home. That I'm hiding from my wife because it cost me nine hundred and fifty dollars, and she'll kill me if yeah. she finds out 
but I spent $950 on a bottle of Bergen, a bottle of champagne. Oh, I thought she would just drink it and not worry about it. <laughs> well, yes, I've been worried that she would just drink it because her, her rule is if it's in the house, I can drink it and she doesn't contemplate anything Or she drink like it that. just to say, it serves you right for spending so much on wine. <laughs> <laughs> um, the great wine story for me about the expense of wine or the, the irrelevance of it was Marie's father, my father-in-law, who passed away several years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, he hated the idea that I'd spend more than $20 on a bottle of wine when I should be spending it on his daughter, who I was engaged to at the time. So yeah. if I took some wine around to dinner, he he loved great Australian claret. So his cellar was full of old Redmond's, Coonawarra's, Brands, Coonawarras, and wines of that ilk. Um, but every time I took a bottle around, he'd be off to Dan Murphy's the next day to find out what How much cost. it cost. <laughs> and I'd get, I'd get the lecture about Chastised. spending too much on wine. Yeah. Um, I had come across a great stash of um, Vegas, Cecilia Unico. Wow. And it was fabulous to drink with him because he loved it and couldn't work out how much it cost. Right. So... It was the perfect wine to go around and have with Sunday night dinner with him. I guess in this sort of pre-internet big, you know, just going onto Google and, and sort of finding out how much things cost, you'd actually have no. to go into a shop there and were see no, if you could find the wine. There were no Google machines back then. <laughs> uh, and it's sort of my elder daughter is studying science at Melbourne with a view to turning the chemistry into winemaking. Okay. And... She's kind of inspired by that. So we're mucking around trying to source some Tempranillo in Victoria. She's got this fantasy that she wants to live near the sea but make big red wine. Yeah, well, it's not its not completely out of the realms of reason. Yeah. What, what it looks like at the moment is a factory in Bayside or South Melbourne and bringing in grapes from Heathcote or the Yarra. Oh, there you go. Best of both worlds. Yes. Paradise Garage is the working title for that. <laughs> And and so you initially were working in, in, in hospitality? Yes, and have worked in hospitality pretty much well, sporadically, but until Christmas this year I was working in hospitality. I'm still tempted to get back into it. In what in what sort of form have has your hospitality career kind of followed? Um I worked for Ian Hewitson for a long time at mm-hmm. different places, so Champagne Charlie's, the last Aussie Fish Cafe in Melbourne and in Sydney. Um, I managed the Lord Newry sometime in the 90s when he was consulting there mm-hmm. in North Fitzroy. Mm-hmm. Um, then went and worked at the Dogs Bar with Don Fitzpatrick for yes. a couple of years. Yes. Had a little stop at Talano when Huey was at Talano. Mm-hmm. Then went and managed the George for a couple of years back with Don Fitzpatrick. Was this always front of house? Did you ever yeah, 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 no, any I- stints in the kitchen? I love cooking, but I couldn't cope with the pressure of a kitchen. Sure. I'd be shoutier than any shouty chef has ever been. Yeah, and they're pretty shouty. Yeah. <laughs> they seem they want to turn out perfection under extreme circumstances. So I can understand them. Their deadlines shouty. are a little bit shorter than, you know, a lot of artists. <laughs> yeah, well, so many journalists I know and love dearly just managed to drink through their deadlines. Where chefs, <laughs> chefs managed to do their drinking after service, but make up for it then. You know, and, and you know, artists like painters and sculptors is like, no, 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 you can't put a time frame on perfection. <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> yes, indeed. 
Um, so, 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 but you were in sort of um, in that front of house. You're always engaging with. You were to a certain extent, you know, the face. Um, oh, for, yeah, for, very much. For and, Huey. and wine service mm-hmm. in those places. After the George, my memory's not great. I opened a sushi bar in Fitzroy Street in the foyer of the George. Okay, called Birdcage, which ran for. Two or three years and was... Is this back in the Melbourne wine room days? The wine room was on the corner and we were up in the, the okay. lobby yep. in the old birdcage. Did you hang out there much? In the George? No, in the wine room. In the right bit, yeah. I I always felt like I had to clean my shoes to, to go in. So oh, really? Probably, yeah, it was always a little bit tidy. That's why dog spouts probably so much more fun. Yes. <laughs> um, so I was probably well, more the <laughs> downstairs... The public bar. Yeah. Um, I'm as much as I'm full of pretension, it frightens the crap out of me. So, <laughs> um, what were your impressions about Australian wine, sort of, in those days? I was a, in my early days in wine. I was a real snob about Australian wine and wouldn't drink it at all. But once really, I, okay. What well, do, do can you? Have oh, I just hung out too that... much with Russell Branton. I was really became really good at looking down my nose at Australian wine. Right. Okay. So it was um, always that European wine. That's that's that that's was it. That wine. was Australian that wine. Was, was a little bit too what commercial or accessible or just was, not good quality. It was often really one dimensional. I think sure. So many Australian winemakers. So it's a little dick thing. Right. Uh, Australian winemakers want their wine to be oh New World winemakers as well. Don't forget New of Zealand. Course. Yeah, of course. Um, want their wine to be the loudest voice on the table. Yeah. They forget that it's meant to sit in front of the knife and contemplate or compliment what's going on on the plate. Do you think that was partly a reflection of the consumer, though? Like the oh, consumer absolutely. wanted to be... Well, the know, consumer, a nice as much as the show system and journalists. So, yeah, the show system in the 60s drove Coonawarra to making green peppermint patty, cabernets and clarets aping Bordeaux that just got leaner and leaner and leaner. menthol in, in old Coonawarra cabernet. yeah. Um, it's a bit tough. And at the same time, you know, a decade later, they drove Australian Chardonnay to being these big, blousy, Buffering. 44 double D, yeah. out of balance Chardonnays that just whacked you around the head because they needed to stand out in a lineup of 100 wines. I really have a problem with wine professionals, whether, you know, in terms of wine communicators or sommeliers, you know, merchants, whatever, um, really. Slamming like modern Australian Chardonnay is a little bit different to how it was sort of in the eighties and nineties, but they slam Californian Chardonnay for being blousy and buttery and you know too heavy in the mallow and too heavy in the oak. When when you say, well, it wasn't that long ago that that's what Australian Chardonnay was like. Have you conveniently forgotten about that? Yeah, I find it a little bit harsh because you know to a certain extent that is consumer driven. Like that's what the American palate is going to like a little bit more. I think as more people come to wine, you know, it's like if your introduction to wine was through Benin, mm. there, were, there were sweet wines. It was appealing because it was sweet. Mm. Ten blue, years ago, like if you were being introduced to Australian red, it wasn't necessarily sugar sweet, but it was alcohol sweet and American oak sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not to demean that style because at least people were drinking that rather than bourbon and coke. So people were moving to wine rather than Jim Beam and cola, Mm -hmm. but the flavours were quite similar. Sure. 
Um, and that's possibly why that style of wine is still so popular in, in America. Yeah, I, look, but I think everybody's palate will mature with time. So the people that started out drinking sweet Benin came to drinking something that was more balanced and more mm. complementary to food. Mm. People that might have started drinking... At least we got them to dry and then we can say, now let's let's go for a little bit more subtlety in terms of them being more applicable to the dining experience. Yeah, yeah. So I'd, I'd sooner see someone that's 20 years old drinking $5 a bottle Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc sure. than uh, vodka and something in a, in a premix. Yeah, yeah. Um, at least it's beginning to bring people to a wine culture. At what point did you kind of get involved as far as having some wine for yourself? When did you, when did the, the kind of the, the, the idea to... Okay, to... mum and dad were by, originally from the country, grew up in Gippsland. Okay. Uh, they moved to the city when I was quite young, so I grew up Bayside. Right. But they were going back to Gippsland to buy a farm. Okay. By that time, I'd fallen in love with Pinot Noir. I hounded um, Gary Farr and Phil Jones to death at Victorian winemakers' exhibitions, asking them about MV6 and what clone and how they made their Pinots. Sure. Because by then I'd fallen in love with Australian Pinot. Right, okay. Those, Philip Jones and Bannock Byrne in particular. It's interesting that you went from Burgundy to Australian Pinot Noir because I would have thought that a lot of people would kind of Fall in love. Like, that's what I did. Like, I, I mean, my wine, my favorite wine still is Main Ridge Half Acre Pinot Noir from the Mornington Peninsula. Um, and it's, you know, I just, I was there on, on, on the weekend and, and spoke to Nat and said that. And he said, oh, there's so many better wines. Like, but that's not what it's about. It's about, it's my favorite wine. But eventually, I then got on to Burgundy and went, oh, okay. But you, you kind of started with Burgundy and then fell in love with Australian Pinot Noir. That's, I find that really interesting. Um, it just it was how it happened to me. There's no <laughs> explanation. No, of course. But, yeah, so then when mum and dad were buying a farm in Gippsland, it had to have a little hill that faced northeast mm-hmm. that I could grow some Pinot on. Right. And having come to Pinot through Great Burgundy, it had to be close planted and dry grown. And I knew that it had to be some interesting clones because there was. It was apparent there was a lot of crappy Pinot Noir clones in Australia, as well as some really, really good ones. And that's where it started. So in 1991, I planted Pinot Noir in Gippsland. Which part? Gippsland's pretty Gippsland's half of Victoria, so it's a terrible descriptor. (laughs) Um, Way up in the hills near Walhalla, so what I'd call Borbore region, if I was writing out Appalachians. the Norse heaven? Yes. Where, um, where all the, where all the so Walhalla literally only got electricity five or six years ago. What? Yeah. They, the, ta- the town generator used to turn off at night at about six o'clock or seven o'clock. Holy. Um, okay. <laughs> it's it's an old, it was an old gold mining town. Okay. So way up in the hills, sort of in behind Mount Erica, up towards Mount Borbal. Right. Um, was it like a, a, a bit of a classic, you know, Victorian gold mining town that... You know, boomed when the gold when the gold rush was on, and then it kind of people moved well, it, away. They were still pulling gold out of it, and the, the mines sporadically reopened depending on the gold price. Even now, oh, okay. but they were still pulling gold out of it at the start of the First World War. Okay, and had to spread a rumor that the town had the plague to get the gold miners to nick off and go to war. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, um, fair enough. 
So that was where Walhalla stopped. And it was literally a ghost town for decades after that. Yeah, yeah. Um, lots of my great-great-grandparents were timber millers oh, up right. in that part of the world. Okay. So, you know, they're buried around Fumina and Icy Creek and up, <laughs> up that way. So wow. I feel a connection there. But it's a, it's a somewhat isolated part of oh, Victoria? It's, yes, very. Um, yeah, the nearest town to where, well, the nearest proper town to where we are is Maui. Yeah. Um, okay. Which is sort of not far from where Bill Downey is from. He's on the north side of the Streslekis facing north. Yeah. Where we're on the south side of the Great Divide. Right. Okay. Um, um, so he's, he's a, probably a fair bit warmer than where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me about, uh, what was the what was the initial kind of experimentation like as far as um, you just planted Pinot Noir just planted Pinot Noir just went hammer and tongs uh-huh. planted Pinot um, wanted to know okay wanted to grow the best po- so this was absolutely without compromise so wanted to grow the best possible Pinot Noir that I could came to it very much wanting small crops with small bunches and small berries and thick skins. Yep. So the vineyard's never been irrigated. It's never been fertilised. Well, it's on extremely fertile sort of deep volcanic spud soil. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fearful because of that that it would get a little bit too vigorous, but that's only happened twice in the 25 years, mm-hmm. 24 years that it's been planted. Mm-hmm. Um, took seven years to get our first crop because it was dry grown. Sure. Um, without pissing in my own pocket, all the theories worked. We grow really beautiful Pinot, mm-hmm. um, typically half a tonne to a tonne to the acre, 35 to 50 grams sort of average bunch weight. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, we're doing a few more things in the last few years in the vineyard that are different. So our original plantings were a metre by two metres, so mm-hmm. two metre rows with a metre between vines. Mm-hmm. Subsequent plantings, we've brought that down to 700 mm-hmm. mil by 200 metres. Now I'm going back through the original vineyard and layering vines to bring it to 500 between vines. So it's almost, almost like a hedge. Yeah. Um, Speaking of it was biodynamic water. since we started, and that was because... Intentionally I was re- or unintentionally? Well... I read that DRC was biodynamic and I wanted to make the best possible wine that we could. Sure. So if it's good enough for if DRC... They, if they, if it was the best does it, then we, for we me. should do it. Yeah, okay. And read up about biodynamics and, oh, hang on, some of this is almost like something I recollect. And I went and saw my uncle, who was a, a cow cocky from South Gippsland. What the F were you doing? You know, uncle Stuart, what were you doing into biodynamics in the mid-60s? He said, what do you mean? What's biodynamics? Mm. I said, well, remember I dug up the cow horns full of cow shit from under the cypress tree when I was six or seven mm. and you beat the crap out of me for doing it? Mm. He said, oh, we're not allowed to talk about that. That's all witchcraft. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, he, or he said, that's all the old pagan farming yeah. that his father, my grandfather, had taught him. And he showed me my grandfather's diaries about planting by the stars and harvesting by the stars and the moon and mm. all of those things that they used to do. So they, they'd never, never heard of Rudolf Steiner, 
but were practising pretty much what was biodynamics. But, but that Rudolf Steiner was basically just cataloguing. He was sort of he was reinterpreting what had already happened. Yeah. Um, and in an odd kind of way, because he came to it from a very Catholic viewpoint, mm-hmm. where the knowledge was all suppressed because of the reformation of the Catholic Church. Yeah. And people's fear that this would be seen as witchcraft. Yeah. And my uncle always said, you know, we never talk about this because people think it's witchcraft. But at the same time, I mean, even within in Catholic Church, there's so much superstition. Oh. I would think that, like, a, like paganism is, is based, like, a lot on superstition. And and sort of like, well, this works. So let's let's just keep doing it because if we if we don't do it, it might not work anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so, and again, having a, I loved chemistry and biology at school. So that reductive scientific brain of mine keeps trying to understand biodynamics from a modern scientific point of view. So sure. That's one of my little passions is trying to understand that. I get there's things that I do get. I think that we're going to have to acknowledge that there's some alchemy going on that might be caused by sort of microflora and fungus and that sort of thing. So I think there are elements possibly being changed. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's some cool things that biodynamics does. But I am still reluctant to blindly believe it. Yeah. And I still do some evil things. And I still occasionally resort to systemic fungicides. And my big fear, and this is the last thing I'll say about biodynamics, is that... To me, it's a way of trying to grow better grapes, mm-hmm. but it's become a marketing term. Yes, so I don't disagree with that. Um, wine is not better because it's biodynamic. Yep. Wine is better because we both grow better grapes and make clever wine. Yes. So, what did that Pinot Noir become? Um, what was what, what the first wine we released? So it's Mundara. Okay. Um, that original vineyard was a hundred meters from east to west. Mm-hmm. Um, but ran across the top of a hill, so part of it faces northeast and part faces northwest. Right. Tasting the fruit in the vineyard and just looking at the fruit in the vineyard, the parcel that faces northeast tastes dramatically different to the parcel that faced northwest. Right. So we made, from 1997 when we made the first wines, we made, made them separately and fermented them separately and put them in barrels separately, and they taste quite different. But did you make them the same way? Initially, yes. Okay. Um, so very much following Guy Arcard, who was a Lebanese-born consultant in Burgundy in the 80s. Okay. Um, quite influential but quite controversial. At the time, people said that he was taking terroir out of the wine. His biggest thing was pre-ferment cold maceration. Right. And he was doing that to counteract vines that had been over-fertilised and were overcropping. Right. Um as young wines, his wines were a bit dry red mm-hmm. rather than identifiably Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. I think as young wines, our wines can be a little bit dry red rather than obviously Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. Um, but they age tremendously. Mm. Um, and it was I was just flattered the other day reading Randall Pollard had tasted a bottle of our 2005 Sambicide that he'd had out of his cellar Mm -hmm. and it had always been my ambition to make wine like Bannockburn that was great Pinot at 10 years old because there's not a lot of Australian Pinot that ages very well Mm. and that was one of the things that I wanted to that was one of the things that I saw in Bannockburn Pinot and Gary Farr's Pinot that I really wanted to try and achieve Mm -hmm. and 
I think I have. Just a quick mid-episode break to acknowledge another supporter of the podcast, Plum Glassware. Uh, Plum is an Australian company uh, that designed uh, glasses and have them made in Europe, uh, beautiful crystal glasses, and um, they did a lot of research to find out the ideal shapes for glasses because uh, there are some brands of glassware which have uh, a different shape for every variety, every style of one you could possibly imagine. And they found out that uh, you actually really only need a couple of shapes uh, to still be able to enjoy the most well out of your wine. So um, f- they've, they've made it very, very simple. You need two shapes for red wine, two shapes for white wine, and a flute, so only five glasses. How much easier is that? Um, if you go to plum.com, you can actually read all about the, uh, the, the design of the uh, glasses. You can find out about how um, the, the shapes are benefiting uh, different styles of wine uh, and also how you can buy the different levels. So they have uh, beautiful handmade ones. They have crystal ones. They have uh, even outdoor ones for you to use when you have a picnic and you have a nice bottle of wine that you still want to enjoy. So go to plum.com and, uh, and read all about it. And thank you very much plum for your support of the podcast what were, what were people's perceptions how did the um the wider trade and media and consumers kind of approach um, it? did it help i'm kind of allergic to a lot of wine retailers and a lot of wine journalists so the wine has never been shown to a lot of journalists over the years mm-hmm. um i remember jeremy oliver ringing me 10 years ago or maybe a bit more and abusing me because um, he first saw my wine in Singapore. And I'd known Jeremy for a very long time. Sure. And he was very upset that I'd never shown him the wine and that he had to discover it in Singapore. Mm. Um, in Asia, in Singapore and Hong Kong and different markets, the wine's been really well received. Um, there are a few Australian sommeliers and journalists who consistently seem to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, I always say, only half-jokingly, that they're Pinot Noirs for Stuyvesant smokers. Um, yeah, making them like Guillacard makes them and making them with a lot of stems. So the Mundara Pinots we do make with between one-third and two-thirds whole bunches. Sure. But when we pick, usually late April, those stems are really dry and desiccated. So the tannin that we get from them is like an Amaro, Averna, mm-hmm. bittersweet, dried orange peel kind of tannin. Yeah, that's what I like. Um, whereas when we also make another wine called Holly's Garden, and when I make Pinot Noir from that vineyard, which is cropped much more heavily, it's cropped at two to three tonne to the acre. Mm-hmm. Um, if we use any stems at that, it makes the wine really green and bitter and unpleasant. Um, so tell me about Holly's Garden. Holly's Garden is at Whitlands, 750 metres altitude. So Whitlands is King Valley? Well, technically it's the King Valley, but in terms of terroir, it's different. Um, 750 metres. Higher up, isn't it? Yeah, way, way, way higher up. So completely different climate. You don't climate. think of that as valley, do you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, years ago, when, when I was at the last Aussie Fish Calf, Brown Brothers released these little 500ml bottles of Riesling and Chardonnay and Gewürztraminer, and then a year later, Pinot Noir, that were... Astounding, mm. um, incredible, bright, natural acidity, really fine fruit. So I'd wanted to plant Pinot Gris. And again, that goes back to me being a waiter or a wine waiter 
in the 80s. And it was beaten into me that... Uh, well, how, how so? How was... how? Wait, wait, why Pinot Gris from when you were a wine waiter? Um, it was beaten into me that Pinot Gris was the great all-rounder for food, just as Pinot Noir really? is the great Interesting. red wine for food. So Pinot Noir is very poly, completely polyamorous. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a great match with so many different foods, but if you're having duck, it's the only wine to have. Of course. Um, it was beaten into me that just as much as Pinot Noir was the great red all-rounder, Pinot Gris is the great white all-rounder for food. Okay. There's pretty much well-made Pinot Gris grown in the right place, and I'll get to that in a minute. But Alsace Pinot Gris is the great all-rounder for food. Mm -hmm. Um, It should have a little bit of sugar, but it should be balanced by acidity. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you're having pork, it's the only wine to have. Mm. So as dark as Pinot Noir pork and Pinot Gris. And if you think about the fruit flavours in Pinot Gris, they're very, very subtle. It doesn't have a lot of overt fruit, but it's Williams pears and golden delicious apples. Mm. And if you think about the fruit that goes with pork, it's golden delicious apples and Pinot Gris. Mm. Now, if you're a pom and you haven't got access to great wine, you're going to drink cider. But if you're in France and you want something to go with your pork, you're going to drink Toque Pinot Gris or Alsace Pinot Gris. Okay. Now, I'll qualify that. Yes, I, I do need to qualify that because there is a big, a big difference stylistically um, between... Because Pinot Gris and Pinot Grigio, of course, are the same great variety, but if you look Made at... very differently. Yeah, if you look at the stylistic differences between what in, in Alsace is labelled as Pinot Gris and what in Friuli is labelled as Pinot Grigio... They're reasonably different styles. Might as well be a different variety. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas I think the lines are much more blurred in Australia where you get Pinot Gris that look like Pinot Grigios and Pinot Grigios are a little bit heavier than you would expect a nice crisp dry Pinot Grigio okay. to be. So I think anybody that knows anything about wine and every wine journalist and every sommelier in the country accepts that Pinot Noir is really fussy about where it's grown and how it's made. Yes. That's taken as given. Fact is, Pinot Gris is even more fussy about where it's grown, but no one recognises that. It was fashionable 10 years ago to have Pinot Gris on your wine list or Pinot Grigio, and so we planted it everywhere with no thought to where it's grown properly. We can thank um, Kevin and Kathleen for that. Well, no, they grew it in the right place. Exactly. Um, you know, they grew it on the Mornington Peninsula and made a beautiful expression of, expression of Pinot Gris. Of course. We'll get to another silly wine I make called after Kathleen later. Um, they make Pinot Gris very differently to the way I do it. You know, they make it in stainless steel. They inoculate it. But it, it expresses beautifully where it comes from. Yeah. It's got really bright, natural acidity. Yeah. Um, now, our winemaking is not very missionary position. It's reverse cowgirl, solids ferment, deliberately oxidised juice, lots of lees, large old oak. When you say deliberately oxidised, you, so, you encourage it or you allow it to happen? Um, we encourage it. So what tends to happen if you oxidise the juice in white winemaking is the harsh phenolics drop out 
Okay. So it's the harsh phenolics that get oxidized. Then when you ferment it, you still get to taste a lot of the fruit, not all the fruit. Yeah. But you've got rid of the harsh phenolics. Okay. Um, that you would then, wouldn't then need to filter out. Yeah. Right. So your know, Holly's Garden Pinot Gris started as being just, you know, this is a long time ago, just free run juice. We initially tipped out the pressings. Right. Then Pinot Gris became very fashionable, so we used to sell all of the pressings. Then I started deliberately oxidising the pressings and making it into wine, and then I found that our wine was better with those pressings included. Mm. Um, and at different times, we've also experimented with um, unfiltered white wine. So our Pinot Gris is all about texture. Mm -hmm. It's all about viscosity. Mm -hmm. it, it's all about lots of things. It's also also all about a balance between sweet and sour. So, you know, the early vintages of Holly's Garden Pinot Gris, it was a very extreme wine, probably inspired by Zintumbrick. Sure. So... I think one vintage was 17.6% alcohol and about 22 grams residual sugar. Right. Um, I still think balanced. Lots of people didn't, but the wine aged extremely well. These days, it's typically 12.5% alcohol, 6 grams residual sugar, um, maybe 5 grams residual sugar, I think the 2015 is, but it's balanced by really bright natural acidity because of where it's grown. Yeah. At Whitland, 750 metres altitude. The other counterpoint to that is we've complexed. So we've got that balance of sweet and sour, a little bit Asian sort of food or in some sense, mm -hmm. but that's balanced by our winemaking, which gives it a little bit of soft phenolics and complexity and some brioche kind of lees flavour. It's basically putting things in context. Yeah. And, in, you know, you have, like if you have X, I typically X would stand out if you didn't have Y. Yeah. So you have to have that kind it's, of the, a counterbalance. That was the thing that I learned making wine at Pronotto in 91, 92, is that even cheap wine can be good if it's balanced. Sure. And no matter what, the most important thing in wine is balance, so that you can, between two of you, sit down and drink a bottle of white wine over your entree. Mm -hmm. um, drink a bottle of red wine over your main course mm -hmm. after you've had a sherry or a glass of champagne and mm -hmm. before you've had a half bottle of dessert wine. I did come to wine in the 80s, so you have to... <laughs> the long lunches, the long busy lunches, yeah. Yeah. I'd say, I remember, um, I think I was a comedian years ago, sort of saying, do you remember back in the days when, when a, a pub had a massive car park? You don't see that anymore. Because <laughs> no, obviously with the, the you know, drink driving laws and, and cracking down on that kind of thing. It it's changed the way we, we which, drink wine. Which is good. Yeah. It's, yeah. you know, you, you sort of, I think it's it's hard not to think of that kind of bygone era with some fondness, but we probably are better off for it. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned Kevin McCarthy and Kathleen Queerly before. I did. And... They really pioneered some different winemaking with really just clean, simple fruit. And to me, all of the great wines speak about where they're from, but also who made them. Okay. And, okay, they've sold to Gallant a long time ago. Yeah. But, you know, to Gallant really tasted identifiably like Mornington Peninsula Chardonnay, but just as much as a wine made by Kathleen Queerly. Sure. Um, you know, if you taste... Sally's Paddock, it's identifiably Pyrenees, but it's also identifiably Neil Robb. Sure. Um, Giaconda Chardonnay. 
identifiably Rick Kinsbrunner and Beechworth. Yeah. So to me, wine has to be very, very considered in, in how you make it. So over the years with the different experiments we've had or I've had with phenolics and the wines have been called all sorts of different things. We made some Romato style Pinot Grigio. I made an unfiltered Pinot Gris that we called Reverse Cowgirl. We've had lots of experiments. Those experiments have sort of come to a conclusion in two ways. One is Holly's Garden Pinot Gris is a slightly sweet phenolic wine, mm -hmm. slightly phenolic wine. But we're also making now a wine called After Kathleen, dedicated to Kathleen Queerly, that's a blend of Frugliano, Pinot Grigio, Chardonnay and Picolet. So more so about very, Picolet. very much a Friulian. A Friulian you know, wine, just as much after Yosco as after Kathleen. So we, there's some skin contact in the wine, but I do use sulphur because I want to preserve the fruit. Okay. Um, but we're making that wine without filtration. So it's a really dry, tart, crisp, minerally wine, but I've retained viscosity through not filtering it. What sort of skin contact regime? I'm pretty much crush and then straight back through the fresh. So it's not extended skin contact. We extended skin contact the picolet this year and it was incredible. Post-fermentation? Uh, Pre-fermentation and... And through ferment, yeah. Okay. Um, wasn't a big part of the final blend. And initially I thought I'd screwed it up completely, but I came back to it a little while later and it was fabulous. But that's why a lot took of these a little iconic Freulian producers don't release their wines for like four or five years. Yeah, the tannin needs time to soften. Absolutely. Um, so it's like we're making some Nebbiolo again. I made Nebbiolo in the 90s, making Nebbiolo again now, but with extended post-ferment. Where's that coming from? Um, our own vineyard in Gippsland. So cool. we planted a little bit of Nebbiolo that, thanks to global warming and some silica sprays, I'm getting ripe now. <laughs> I never, I, uh, 2013 was the first time I ever got it ripe. Right. Planted in 92. Um, but also from uh, from 2016, I'll have some from Chessunt. And 13, 12, 13, 14, 15, I've got some from... Um, Hoddles Creek in the Yarra Valley. Sure. And do you think that every wine you make, that uh, wherever it comes from, tastes undeniably of Neil Prentice? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've, I've never made a single red wine that hasn't had a hint of VA. We sort of proudly say, and the word is stolen from Randall Graham, but proudly say that our wine has funcosity. Funcosity? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think he gets away with it because he's based in Santa Cruz. Which yes. Is, which is very much a hippie town. <laughs> oh, and he's, he's a PhD in literature. Yeah. And a Jimmy He's Hendrix a wonderful writer. Addict. Yes. And yes. a wonderful tweeter as well. Mm. Um, I met him many years ago, but we've been chatting about a few things of late. So s seven, ten years ago now, I started growing Pinot Noir from seed on the advice of Bailey Caritas. Uh -huh. I was talking to him about um, different Pinot Noir clones, and he said if he was a young man, he would be growing Pinot from seed. His argument is that Pinot is indigenous to Burgundy, um, and that the reason that there's broad genetic variation in Pinot Noir is because it's grown, comes from a sexually reproduced base. It's not propagated. Not, it didn't come to France like Shiraz in the backpacks of some Roman tourists 2,000 years ago. Sure. Um, so we've been doing that for a while, 
And the first generation was all hermaphrodite self-pollinated. Okay. So we've got self-pollinated MV6, self-pollinated Calera, self-pollinated Abel, self-pollinated Pomard. Um, there's some cool Pinot from Best's at Great Western that I had a few cuttings of that Biff sure. Thompson gave me from. So they're all self-pollinated and they've been growing well. Now I've got a girl in a white coat with a paintbrush cross-pollinating the male and female progeny of those to get a second generation of Pinot Noir that'll give me some more genetic diversity. Sure, sure. And a little bit more indigenous. Well, I think in you know, a, a thousand years' time we'll begin to have um, Pinot that's evolved in our soils. Sure. If we do that. Where that leads to and where I mentioned Picolit before is I have had a row of Picolit that I planted way back in 1992 as well is female. So it's the only female Vitus vinifera that we make wine from. Apparently there's two table grapes that are female that are Vitus vinifera, but Picolit's the only wine-making female variety. Um, so if I'm going to grow grapes from seeds, surely I've got to do something with Picolit. So we've been cross-pollinating that with Mendoza clone Chardonnay, Pinot Bianco, Fugliano and Pinot Grigio. So ultimately, the wine that I'm calling after Kathleen, while it's now off um, proper Frugliano, proper Mendoza clone Chardonnay, um, proper Pinot Grigio, there's some Pinot Bianco will go into the blend next year and pickle it. Ultimately, that wine will be 50% from grapes grown from seedlings. Have you thought of a name for it yet? Well, each one, like... Each each vine will be a different variety. Yeah, of course. Technically. That's, um, that's a crazy concept. Yes, well, there's only other one other not job that I can find, and he's just released his um, fundraiser paper, is Randall Graham. Right. Um, so he's planting a vineyard in California with Grenache grown from seeds. That's right. He's done a Kickstarter. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we've been chitty-chatting about that for a couple of years. He's got another mate somewhere in the US that's growing Pinot from seed as well. So oh, interesting. It's cool. And again, it goes back... No, I'm not, I'm not going to say biodynamics again, but it goes back to BD theory. Sure. In that things should be grown from seed. Sure. So I know the people that make that really cool Chenin Blanc. Where? Loire. Jolie? No, BD, proper BD nut job. All of his Chenin is grown from seedling. Nicolas Jolie is. Yes. Nicolas, oh, Nicolas Jolie, Jolie. He, he's the head of the Return to Terroir. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's him. Yeah. Um, it's, it's got the um, seahorse as his logo. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, so his Chenin Blanc's all grown from seed. Ah, uh-huh. interesting. Proper nut job. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but in I think a good way. In a good way. I think you have to be to sort of make those decisions. And it sounds really exciting. Uh, I, 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 and obviously... Uh, what I like about the, 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 what you're doing is that it's, it's possible that you're not necessarily going to see the, uh, pun intended, the fruits of your labour, you know, within your sort of time, uh, you know, there's something that's going to be ongoing and you get to sort of... Well, man, hopefully someone else loves my vineyard. Maybe one of my children will love my vineyard. That sounds um, like your daughter might be getting into it. Oh, I don't think she'll ever drive a tractor. <laughs> She's an urban girl, so she wants to live somewhere near the sea. Um, 
She'd love to make wine. Right. Um, but I can't see her looking after the vineyard. Maybe my younger son might look after the vineyard. I planted some cider apples for him or with him just the other day. Cool. So he's 16 and has been making backyard cider under the pretense of learning about chemistry. <laughs> I think there might be some other motivations. He seems quite popular with his friends at the moment to come around and drink all his cider. Yeah, recordedly. No, this is... It's proper Bone dry, dry method oh, champenoise cider, although it's not disgorged. Okay. Um, oh, even better. Pep yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, so it's bone dry because it's fermented in bottle. It's mm-hmm. not, there's no dosage. It's cloudy. It's murky. But So we've planted badan, uh, frecken rouge, and a peri pear called gin. Wow. So awesome. Well, look, there's lots of like little projects you've got and there's lots of wines out there. Um, what's the, the best way of people um, finding out about how, how they can find all these different little projects and products so they can actually go and taste themselves? Um, Pinot Palooza is about to start its world tour of Australia. Yes. So Saturday next week, the 1st, I'm at Pinot Palooza in Perth, the week after in Adelaide. 1st of August? Yep. Um, in October, Pinot Palooza is Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. Sure. In November, I'll be at Rootstock. Mm-hmm. Um, and otherwise, I am allergic to wine retailers, so there's not a lot of retailers that stock our product. You can buy it on wine, so we'll sell and ship for three, three bottles of anything. Right. Um, or there's lots of great restaurants across Australia. Just go, go into your favourite restaurant and ask for Mundara or... Holly's. Holly's Garden. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> Demand it. But uh, on social media, can people follow you? Um, yes, it's a very bumpy ride. That's um, all right. That's, that's, I that's say what I think far too often. Um, there should be a breathalyzer on Twitter. So I'm Moondara on Twitter. Um, and I have someone more sensible than me that runs the Holly's Garden Twitter. Right. So that's Holly's Garden. Um, I'm Neil Moondara on Facebook. And Neil Mundara on Instagram. So you can chat to me at any of those forums. Fantastic. But um, definitely uh, head to the website and you, I'm sure you'll find as so much you information. Can, there's, the site does need to be updated, but you can go to mundara.com.au to read about it or to buy it or hollysgarden.com.au to read or buy. Fantastic. But uh, Neil, thank you very much for joining me today on the, the Vincast. I look forward to... Uh, to trying some more wines and to seeing, you know, the projects evolve and and, because it sounds fascinating to me. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for all your time. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) Cheers. As always, guys, thank you very much for joining me for another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gersbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at Intrepid Wino, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter, at The Vincast. Facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino is where you'll find the Facebook page, so give me a like there. Uh, and if you search for Intrepid Wino, one word on YouTube, you'll find my YouTube channel, which is where I've been posting Let's Taste videos, including the live streaming episode for from Monday night. So uh, subscribe to the channel, uh, give me some likes and uh, comment on the videos. Let me know what you thought. You can subscribe to the Vincast on iTunes, Stitcher and Player FM. Uh, that way you'll be able to download the latest episode as soon as it goes live. So if you do subscribe, please leave a, a rating and a review because I love to get feedback and it's also great for people to share the love for the podcast. 
Intrepidwino.com is where you'll find all the information, all the links, as well as every episode of the podcast, uh, every Let's Taste video, and lots and lots of different risings that I've done in the past. Thank you to Neil for joining me for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know if you did. Uh, thank you to differentdrop.com for your support. Uh, make sure, guys, you are using that special code, VINCASTVINO, to get your discount. And thank you also, of course, to Plum for your support of the podcast and the Let's Taste videos as well. I look forward to having you on the next episode, but until then, bye.